Hello and welcome to this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness with myself, Dr. Miriam Francois. For those of you joining us for the first time, this series is dedicated to exploring the largely unspoken meaning of whiteness in the UK. What do I mean by whiteness? Well, I'm referring to whiteness here in this conversation as the foundation of racial categories and racism. To quote the academic Paul Kivel on the definition of whiteness, he says, Racism is based on the concept of whiteness, a powerful fiction enforced by power and violence. Whiteness is a constantly shifting boundary, separating those who are entitled to have certain privileges from those whose exploitation and vulnerability to violence is justified by their not being white. On this episode, we'll be focusing on whiteness in corporate culture, in the office, in your workplace, and at all levels of the suited and booted world. And to discuss this, I'm joined by writer and media executive Nelson Abbey, formerly from the BBC, and author of Think Like a White Man, a satirical guide to conquering the world while black, which was written under the pseudonym Dr. Boulay Whitelaw III, who in this fictional reality is a professor of whiteness studies. Now, his book has been described as the work of a true mastermind by Benjamin Zephaniah, the poet. And prior to moving into the media, Nelson was a banker, meaning he has much to tell us about the corporate world and its whiteness. He's a former BBC executive, a Claw Fellow, a ben Penguin Fellow, and a Fellow of the Royal Society for the Arts. His writing work has been published in every major quality British newspaper and many magazines. And he's a social and political commentator who regularly appears on Channel 4, Newsnight, Radio 4, LBC, and Sky News. He's also the founder of the Black British Writers Guild. Welcome, Nelson. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me, and it's Nels, Nels Abbey, that's my, that's my name that the world knows me by, but yeah. Nels, thank you. all right, we'll go with Nels. So, Nels, what's your definition of whiteness, um, and, and what do you think about the, the, the tool uh, conceptually? Is it, is it a useful term in your, from your perspective? I think it's such an amazing question you ask. If I was to think of what do I describe as whiteness, I think the definition of whiteness that has been thrust upon me as a black person in Britain as a black person in a white, white supremacy-dominated society or world, is I'll probably describe it as normality, as the just the, the standard that every that for which everything else is based upon. That say this is a standard level hundred, and everybody else has to aspire to that level. It of course doesn't exist. It of course is a complete absolute. It's a complete absolute myth. It is of course founded. It's the foundation of on which racism is actually built. But as far as everything or every aspect of my world, everything I've had to do with my life has actually gone, uh, that I've had to go into and try and conquer within or so, or try and do well for myself within, whiteness has always just been, that is normal. I am therefore having to actually, you know, it, unless, I, unless I've actually found a way to overcome it, but I'm having to actually find some way to almost, uh, almost attain that level of normality. I don't view it as excellence. I, I don't. View, I, I can't say I personally view it as normality, but I think it would be defined as normality, if that mm. makes some degree of sense. Yep. Yeah. So, um, uh, would you say a level of conformity with whiteness is expected within the corporate world? One hundred percent. Absolutely. Yeah. If you're working in the corporate world uh, as a black person or so, yeah, uh, um, conformity is is very very much expected. Professionalism as it is often described, is could often be seen as a euphemism for white middle class 
culture, interests, appetites, ways of doing things, and ways of communicating and conducting themselves. And the more you deviate from that, the less professional you are likely to be seen. Now, don't get me wrong, working class white people struggle sometimes with the actual, with the cultural norms and customs in the, in, a, uh, in, the, in the professional world. But middle class white people, for example, that is their world. Same thing like when you go into, say, parliaments. If you go through the houses of um, commons, or you're just walking through the Palace of Westminster altogether, you are in a place that is very, very alien to the average human being, to the average black person even more so, to the average working class person even more so, the way in which they communicate more so. But if you were somebody who was born and raised and went to Eton or went to one of these great private schools or so, then, yeah, this is normal to you, that pattern of speech, that way in which they do things or so, the way in which they view the world, that is what you were raised into, and that's normality. Um, that is normality, that's upper-class whiteness, but as far as the professional world is concerned, for the most part, it's upper-middle-class or middle-class whiteness, and off you go forward from there. Mm. And so what's interesting to me is when we discuss whiteness, for me it's very much, um, you know, as we're saying, like a, a structure of power which was created uh, or formed in many ways to maintain a hierarchy of human value and to um, maintain uh, basically white power, uh, you know, by establishing the norms of certain groups as the norm, uh, it then by virtue of that um, hierarchy relegates people who don't conform uh, lower down the rung and with that you know economic social cultural political implications to it what's interesting to me is um on the flip side blackness has a very different meaning right what how would you define blackness um i'll come can i just touch on what you just said there about yes, the, about the, yeah, about, about, here, to, then, I'll, yeah. then i'll come to then I'll come to black I'll, I'll give you all, yourself and your viewers an insight to my life a little bit so when I was about 12 years old, I was one of those naughty African kids, uh, African-British kids or British-Nigerian kids in my specific um, realm. And normally, most people don't associate nuclear weapons with African parents, let alone Africans. But every African parent has a nuclear weapon and it's aimed squarely at their children. And it's called a one-way flight to the old country. So, um, and so I was one of those kids who got a little bit naughty, nothing too serious, don't get me wrong, I didn't, I didn't shoot my supply teacher or anything else or so, but, uh, but my mom was very strict and my mom sent me to go live in, um, in Nigeria and then to go live with my dad who was, who was living in Nigeria at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, my dad, um, and it was quite a funny thing because when you're young, growing up when I did, the only impression I had of Africa was live aid and banding and that sort of stuff. So I thought they were going to go send me to a place, flies on their face and that sort of stuff. I thought that was going to be terrible. It's not oh, until wow. when I got to Lagos that I realized actually my standard of living had improved. That yeah. Lagos was actually an amazing place. And it was so much fun there with the girls. But my dad saw I was coming a bit too relaxed. So my dad sent me to a boarding school. Mm. Long story short, when we got to a boarding school, the boarding school was tough. It was strict. It was the same school that he went to. It was in this old Nigerian city called the city of Abelkota which actually means under a rock, which has other mythical reasons to it, but we'll come to that. We'll, we'll, that's for another, that's another story for another day. Sure. But what really was interesting in my boarding school with this was that my boarding school was founded in, it was a school called Baptist Boys High School. It was founded in 1923 by missionaries, by British missionaries in Nigeria. Of course and it was. Till this very, till this very, very day, and it was actually a pump, it was an elite school. It was a school that was pumping out the Nigerian elite. So two presidents went to my school, and this is when Nigeria had about five or maybe seven or eight presidents to its name at the time. I think it's probably got about 10 or 11 right now. Mm. So what was really interesting about it was that on the wall, on the wall of the actual school, um, many walls actually, it would say 
vernacular is prohibited. Mm. And by vernacular, they meant anything that was any speech that was not English. So mm. there's one time, I remember I had one particular liberal and advanced teacher, but I had some teachers that, were, that just didn't know better. So if you were caught speaking in Yoruba, and that was, mind you, in Yoruba land, that is Yoruba, that's been Yoruba land for thousands, hundreds, tens of thousands of years now, so for as long as anybody can remember, yeah. that has been the land of the children of Odua, that's been their land. And if you're speaking Yoruba, Yoruba land, they were getting beaten for it. And wow. literally just teachers would pull out a cane and beat the living daylight out of them. And I excelled because I, my grasp of English was very, very good because I was an English child who had just been sent to Nigeria at the time. Yeah. But a teacher would be beating. And it's not until one day a teacher just said to me that, do they beat uh, the teacher who saw the bigger picture and disagreed with it? He just turned to me and said to me, do, in, do white people beat white, do English teachers beat English students for speaking English in England? And I said, of course not. Then it just dawned on me right there and then what white supremacy was about. Mm. Essentially, they had imported their way of thinking, even their language and cultural norms or so, and for their children, it became so important for the children, for the future elites of the country to really understand this thinking, understand this language and everything else, so that they were getting it beaten into them, literally. Mm lie down on the floor and you'll get beaten um, if, you don't, if, you, if you can't speak this language properly, if you're, if you're caught speaking in the language that your father's father's father, father, father spoke in for hundreds, for tens of thousands of years or so. And that was it. It was just a bizarre thing. And what's yeah. funny is that I believe this still goes on to this very day. That yeah. you can still be kids in school and the better your English. And it's why you probably see a lot of Nigerian writers or so come through and do quite well for themselves because often it is disciplined into them also so the reading the writing and everything else so that's a yeah. different thing but, but yeah but sorry the subsequent question i know this will probably sound like i'm rambling for a long time but no, how no. would i describe how would i describe blackness if i describe whiteness as the norm also or if whiteness is, has been thrust upon all of us as the norm then blackness is the polar opposite of the norm of the absolute perfect abnormality the um the yin to whiteness is yang also, mm. and that's why normally when you're looking in white society, white supremacist societies or so, and how everything else is done, uh, how everything is structured, so no matter what happens, certain migrant groups come and certain migrant groups go in these sorts of societies. Different things happen, the players change everything. But one thing always persistently seems to remain the same is that at the bottom of the social ladder, you're persistently finding black people, and mm -hmm. that is economically, socially, politically. Uh, even technology-wise, of course, the legal system too, um, the, even the exposure to the environment. When you go to Africa, certain places like Lagos today right now, it is visibly dif vividly different to when, you, to when I first got to Lagos about 30 years ago till today. Lagos is an extremely polluted town, but a polluted place uh, mm -hmm. um, amongst many different things. So, yeah, so blackness is, is pretty much the, almost like the, yeah, as I said before, the, the, perfect, uh, the perfect abnormality to whiteness is um, normality. That it's almost, it, and it's, again, they're two fictional concepts. Like, blackness doesn't exist in biology. Blackness mm -hmm. doesn't exist. It's a social construct, a, a fictional, a man-made construct that benefits, again, whiteness, that benefits white people or white supremacy um, to be there, to be the boogeyman for, to be the enemy, to be the thing that we, that we coalesce against. And mm. it's, a, it's a dangerous thing. If you take, for example, this final example about this, Barack Obama, first black president, um, when you look at it policy for policy for policy for policy, he was pretty much just another white president. Mm. 
if when you look at the outcomes that led to for black people, there was no betterment. Mm. There was no betterment. There was no deviation because again, the system, whiteness is whiteness or white supremacy, as whatever we should describe it, is yeah. an auto. So in, in order for you to deviate away from it, in order for you, for you, so you can put a black person, it happens in the corporate world a lot, you'll put a black person in charge of a whole department or so, and you see that the lived experiences of black people doesn't differ that much at all. Yeah. That's the system, that's normality. And for that black person to n navigate their way through that normality, they have to understand it and conform to it themselves too. Yeah, which I think is something that you bring out hilariously, by the way, in the book, the ways in which, uh, you know, the, the conformity that's required re requires like a, a stripping of the self um, and a kind of uh, replacing of, of who you are with a, a an, an imagined whiteness, you know, um, that, that allows you to be to pass, as it were, um, um, in, in environments where the the vernacular the only intelligible vernacular is 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 whiteness um but it's really interesting to hear you say that because i think we've become very obsessed particularly in the corporate world and it'll be interesting to hear what what your views are on this with optics what i call the politics of optics in fact i personally am very critical of a lot of um what we call you know the push for diversity because it feels to me a lot of the time that um, a lot of what is happening is what you've just described there, which is, you know, if you just bring in uh, someone who isn't white into a position of power, you know, suddenly you've solved racism, way. Um, and the question of what the person who you've just put into a position of power, not just what they stand for, right, but what they plan to implement um, in order to tackle the issue that you allegedly have placed them there to resolve um, is rarely ever discussed. Um, what what do you think about the big push for diversity that we're seeing now, um, which has now become integral, hasn't it, to, to the corporate conversation around, around inequality in the workplace? I think that there's it, the funny thing about it, the the push for diversity is it has it rears its head every now and then. Corporate diversity it rears its head every now and then, but the reality is that often, I mean, corporate diversity schemes, for example, have a fifty year track record of failure mm. to them. But what they often are, what they're often serving as, is a is a form of corporate damage control. Mm. Um, so often, what you're seeing that look, um, the corporate, uh, as Brule White will probably say, the, as Brule White will probably say, if it was a Native American, the corporate white man speaks with 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 forked tongue. Um, mm. The thing about is that we'll often find that hey, there's a discussion about corporate diversity. Let's try and move things forward. Let's try and get more ethnic minorities in in the place or so. Let's try and resolve the pay gap and everything else. And then you go back about a year, two later, three year, uh, one year, two years, three years later, things haven't changed at all. Mm. Things haven't changed at all. But what it has bred is a degree of resentment within the organisation, because when we start talking about when any organisation starts talking about corporate diversity, whether they know it or they don't know it, um, the dominant sector of that of that um, organisation, which is in, invariably going to be white professionals, they start to get nervous because they start to think that okay, my job's at threat because they mm. want to put a black person into my job or so and I've got about I have a I have 215 um, mortgage payments left to go I need this job um, yeah. so I can't lose it and which is a fair enough suspicion but a problem once again there too is that they start if you're not careful they'll start looking around the team and thinking who's the threat to me over here who's the person that they're going to bring up and take and push me out of the organization for push me out of my mm -hmm. job for and that person gets muscled out so the the problem that we have as far as corporate diversity is concerned is that it is the it, what they say about the road to hell being um, paved with good intention is very, very 
is very, very true. I, I myself have personally experienced um, the horrible side of corporate diversity schemes, that they're very well advertised, they're yeah. very well um, publicized or so, but that often they normally just end in quiet failure. And mm. no one has to say them when they do. But also, too, the problem with it is that it often just breeds resentment and how it does for And another element of it is that sometimes it is limited, it is simply corporate damage control or good mm. publicity in process. So uh, across the board, corporate diversity is a very, very dubious um, concept. It's a very, very, um, it's, to some degree, it is necessary for corporations, of course it's necessary for corporations to hire and have black people across the board and have all sorts of ethnic minorities across the board. So that's, that is not inherent, subject to what the organization is actually doing, that is not inherently a bad thing. For, and by that, I mean this. If of you course. say to me, hey, there's no corporate diversity at the head of the US private prisons company or so, um, I couldn't give a damn whether there is corporate diversity or not there. So the organization should exist. That's an oppressive organization. Mm. Um, but what we're looking for, so where these if we're making them the assumption that organizations are adding value to society, and there's no understanding of well, that's adding, to, and there's no understanding of society at large um, within the upper echelons of that organization, then that's a dangerous thing. Because if we, if this organization adds value to the society, we need it to exist. And we need to exist well, and that's and the organisation or company needs to understand society, and therefore it needs diversity. But my yeah. problem with it is, it doesn't take rocket science. Just hire black people, putting doing all the big announcements and the speeches and the stats and everything else. So that's where things just start to go a bit crazy because it just breeds resentment. It doesn't breed progress. Mm. But yeah, but overall, I'm very, very as a book, as think like a white man would probably suggest to anybody. I have my suspicions about corporate diversity. I do speak at corporations sometimes. I've yeah. worked at very senior levels in multiple industries. I can't lie. I've done quite well for myself out there. And hopefully, we'll continue to do so in um, in different in different realms. But the but the key thing too is that I do recognise that sometimes a lot of it is just lip service, but it's dangerous lip service because mm -hmm. it creates. If you're not careful, it can create a hostile environment for black people who are within the organisation. And um, I worked at one company, for example, in which um. If you walk, if you are a black person walking around the f any floor, you go into a meeting. Some white person is probably likely to ask you, "What scheme are you on?" Oh wow! Because every black person there was on one scheme or another, or something like that. And it just felt like, yeah. So even if you've been there for however long, if the person didn't recognize you, they just ask you, so, "So what scheme are you on again?" And that yeah. be it. It's embarrassing. It's stigmatizing. It suggests as if you're as if you have some degree of um, exceptionally special need. Which yeah. is don't. Blackness. blackness is not a disability; it's a disadvantage um, within the within the realm of whiteness, or so within the realm of within the realm of white stability, white stability, white supremacy, and that's yeah. the issue over here. So, in terms of actually diversity and inclusion, or so, I would say remix it. Let's call it what it is. What mm. you need to do is just find a way to get rid of racism. Yeah, get rid of racism. Get rid of white supremacy from your corporation. That should yeah. mix it your not the problem of the people coming in. And that makes it a problem of the dominant sector of the organization, not the people a problem of black people in the slightest bit. So it takes the nature of, um, the threatening nature of that new black person who's come in, will probably walk out again in a couple of years because they'll mm. be frustrated out. But it takes pressure off them and puts the pressure where it needs to be, which is on getting rid of racism and racial, um, and, and racial normality from our organization and creating a fair and inclusive one. Mm. And and I mean, I, 
actually really want to come back to this question of how corporations are managing it because I often ha- I do a fair bit as well um, going in- into corporations as well and, and talking about some of these issues um, based off, off of whiteness and uh, one of the issues that um, I feel that comes up regularly and I'd be interested to hear if, if you've noticed this as well is that the perspective from which um, the conversation is usually uh, brought forward is the perception that you mentioned a second ago that that blackness is almost like like a disability and so that the the the, the sort of white people in power in the organization almost treat it as if there's a, a pathology that needs treating that they are kind of you know um there's almost like a white savior element to it where it's like yeah. you know we, we will help we will help solve this issue which which ultimately isn't really about them saving anyone, but about expanding the uh, seats at the table, right? Um, yeah. Which um, so is that something that you recognise as well within kind of the the efforts that corporates are making, um, which are there, right? I mean, we I think a lot of people, particularly after BLM, of of a lot of big organisations are talking about the need for diversity, the need to diversify. Um, but but pitfall wise, what's what's the kind of a few big warnings that you would offer based off your experience? So one of the big issues I I remember I was on a diversity scheme, a senior corporate diversity scheme, a few years ago, and then one of the other guys. So I went to a normal university in London. I was a working class black guy. Uh, went to, I didn't go to a Russell Group University, even though I got into one. I didn't know the system enough. And that's, again, so when I often speak to people nowadays about, hey, we tend to only recruit from Russell Group organizations about young people, I say to them, well, Russell Group, that's good because you have synonymized it with academic excellence. But often what you're not negating for is the fact that there might be a class element in which this person just didn't know the system. And they associated mm. the, the nearby university or the university they knew with being almost this the equivalent to say one of the Russell Group University. So unless you're not going to Oxford or Cambridge or so, if you're a working class person, there's a very, very easy or seductive tendency to just see that as, okay, this school is pretty much similar and then similar to that school. So this school's closer. So I'll save money if I do that. I'm not recognizing that you are the branding element or so is huge for that. And mm-hmm. it could actually damage your life. So it's just the class element. But one element that I found really, really funny is that I was on that school with somebody who was an Oxford PhD by his 28th birthday. Mm. And that means, so he did, he was an Oxford undergrad, he was Oxford from, from um, the comprehensive system. It wasn't like this was some super middle-class person. Um, yeah. He was just a genius. And he ran major, he ran a big corporation, um, a major think tank, amongst other things or so. And he went to this new organization, big organization in the country, and he couldn't get in unless he went on a diversity scheme. And I thought to myself that this black guy here is one of the most educated people, not only in this organization, but in the country. He is truly brilliant. He mm. doesn't need to be on this scheme at all whatsoever. But the only yeah. problem was that he wanted to work here. And the only way which he could get in was for him to get onto the scheme. Interesting, yeah. Or to restart his career 20-something years. Yeah. And that was the big problem that it presented. But they don't do that, that, that it wasn't happening with none with, with white people, so, yeah, for example, there was something that was done with ethnic minorities, and it was a big problem, but I just, yeah. like, they couldn't recognize it, that, yeah, that this was not your subordinate, this was your peer, so yeah. there was nothing, so as, you, as I pointed out, so as I, as I said before, blackness is not a disability, there is nothing wrong with black, black there's blackness or black skin, whatever, there is nothing wrong with black people at all, 
And you're right, this notion that, hey, oh my God, well, you, this is too much for your little head to understand. Mm. So what you need to, so what we're going to do is we're going to put together a scheme in which um, we are going to train you to become super duper, to be like us. We're going to help we're, you. We're yeah, to help you, to, be, <laughs> to help you to be more like us yeah. for the next week, for the next however long or so. And then at the end of it, hopefully you'll find a job. And mm. of course, the norm is at the end of it, they just wave bye-bye to you and that's that. And you know, mm. but you have to almost, it's again, it's the parable, it's the, um, the, the bitter paradox of, black, of blackness that you, sometimes you're having to um, collaborate with your own subjugation in order to move forward, in order to mm. make it within our society. And mm. that's something that I pointed out a lot, you know, think like a white man, or yeah. I point out a lot, that often time and time and time again, that excellent black people, um, excellent people are having to really just, just because of where they are with the social ladder, Things they cannot help, they haven't actually just collaborate with their own, their own, their own down putting, yeah. um, just to do that. So yeah, so going on a going on a diversity scheme again, it's not an acceptance that hey, that um, that there's something wrong with me. In fact, not yeah. that it could be quite frustrating because you know, look, I can do much better than this. But mm-hmm. it's just a social order once again too. And then you then see people who have much lesser ability than you, or so roaming around um, doing little but doing quite well for themselves at the same time. Yeah, and it's just so, the way it goes. It's just, it's an order. It's a social order. And if you're not, if you are not nearer to the realm of normality or so, then you have to compensate for that fact. And if yeah. you're the polar opposite to normality, black people, as this, as we, as we are racialized as or so, it becomes an even bigger problem. Mm. And how do you resolve that problem or so? And um, yeah, so there's nothing wrong with black people. Blackness is not a disability in the slightest bit. There's nothing wrong with having a disability. But there's, but, but I, I don't want to sound as if I'm being um, horrible in that regard. But it's not that, or so it's not that. Hey, it's not a special need. The right. only pro- problem is with white supremacy. That's what the problem is for black people. Right. Not black. Yeah, there's nothing inherent. There's no gene in us that says, hey, we are inherently lesser than lesser than yeah. anybody else, and then we we need that lesser than this uh, trained out of us. So here's a anti lesser than anti lesser than for you to come into our organization it's ridiculous yeah and I mean I wonder to what extent um is that I mean you, you obviously chose to write the book under uh, this pseudonym Dr Boulay Whitelaw III um can you tell us a bit about why you chose to do that obviously there's a tongue-in-cheek element to it um but you know this is someone who's a professor of uh, white people studies uh, which by the way for those who don't know is an actual field in America there are actual uh, whiteness studies departments um there's I think one here in the UK uh, that I that I know of an actual department um so this this does actually you know people who study white white whiteness um they they do exist um but but yeah why 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 go down the the uh, pseudonym route on this occasion and what were you trying to get at through uh telling the story through his eyes well i i'm not an academic i by by way of my careers i was i was twofold i was a banker for initially and which probably wouldn't be too many were too many friends but after that so i went on to become a media executive and above through all those things i was a writer and I've always found academics such as yourself, and it's always interesting whenever I'm on the telephone to an academic, I always find you very interesting to speak to people to speak to. So I've met very interesting academics throughout my entire life. Um, I've met people who are scholars on Islamic studies, scholars on um, African-American studies, African studies, everything else. But contrary to what you just pointed out, 
I had never met a white people studies academic. Well, I've never yes. met somebody who would held themselves out and says that I am a, I am the world's leading expert on white people. That, mm-hmm. It just seems like, because yeah. again, it was treated as if it was too complex a concept. Um, sometimes it was, it was too complex a concept to actually understand. Whereas mm-hmm. I've met quite a few people who were experts on, on, on Africa, which is, again, one of the most diverse societies, possibly the most diverse society on earth. Yeah. Essentially, when you think of Africa or so, even in Nigeria, yeah. there's about 400, 400 different ethnic groups. Um, yeah, most and people, how many they languages? Think Nig- yeah. Hundreds of them. Most people, yeah. when they think of Nigeria, even in Nigeria, when they think of Nigeria, they think of Yoruba and Hausa and Igbo people. And yeah. when I tell them that, I, that I'm actually Shakiri, they turn mm. to me and say, "What is that curable? And I said, no, it's an, it's an ethnic group. And so they think that I've got some sort of disease or something. Um, so yeah, so that's, so that's it. But yeah, so... The key thing I, w- I was trying to do with this is that I felt that, look, there's, in terms of the books on, on the horizon, on race or so, that were trying to look into this topic, they're very, very serious pieces of scholarly work. And um, I wanted this to be that too, and I think we achieved it to some degree. But I also wanted to have its own unique nature. And I, I like writing humorously. That's my thing. Mm. Um, I just like writing. I, I often find that, hey, that a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down as um as uh, Mary Poppins, the great philosopher, pointed out. But mm. I just want to, I enjoy doing that. I enjoy making myself laugh. I enjoy making other people laugh or so. And I enjoy reading funny things. Um, so, I, so when I was originally going to write this, I was just going to write something called, like, hey, being black in the corporate world. And I just felt that, okay, this is, being who I am, this would present a degree of difficulty for me as a professional. Mm. But I thought, let me do something truly myself and write something truly brilliant with no... With no, um, with no holes barred or anything else, just something where it's like, hey, let's have a book that's as black as it could possibly want to be and make it so black that it was just too black for Britain. Even mm. Croydon, too black for Croydon. So <laughs> I just felt like, yeah, um, let's do something crazy like that. And that's what we did with this. And now if it was written from my perspective, from a Nels, if it was just a Nels Abbey book or so uh, by Nels Abbey, it would probably be a lot more reserved, a lot more professional or so. But me writing it from Dr. Boulay Whitelaw's perspective, who's this unhinged black man who's an actor who's the, who holds himself out as the world's leading expert on white people, who doesn't give a damn, who just behaves almost as if he's a white man himself and just mm. writes about white people in the way in which white men in particular have written about black people for centuries as they just didn't yeah. care about anybody's feelings or any offense whatsoever let's just go for it let's have some fun and bingo yeah so i thought that would be that would be something different to do um yeah. and we did and i think it, it came out quite well and the feedback has been pretty good and i it think has. it's worth a purpose yeah. i mean for those for those who know um definitely some glowing reviews dame baptist says it's hilarious uh rennie Adolodge seriously uh also said she um uh had to laugh because if she didn't she'd cry so um funny but also with some kind of very profound points being made throughout um i i was uh particularly interested in the ways that you tackle or, or, or uh, Dr. Whitelaw tackles or Dr. Whitelaw III tackles um, some of the issues around um, the the way in which you have to navigate the workplace um, when you're racialized as black and that some of your colleagues who I mean the, the Australian example I don't know how much to give away but um, the Australian man who kind of coasts I call I've met many coasters um, that often middle class white people can can easily be coasters if you've gone to a relatively um, decent university 
um, then then there's a there's a coasting that can happen, uh, which you know I don't know um, if you if you're familiar with. I talk about whiteness as kind of like the fish swimming in water. You're kind of surrounded by it. You don't even see it. You're kind of being gently pulled along by the current. You don't even see it. That's what it's sort of being being white in a white world feels like. Whereas you know if you're the fish that's having to swim against the current, um, your experience of of water is is quite different um yeah. so uh the do you want to tell us about the the kind of australian in the story who um is is one of the colleagues who who somehow has managed to become a banker with with no qualifications and, and got to the same position um yeah so yeah so um, it's actually based on, again so the book is non-fiction i think like white man so that is a work non-fiction it's based upon my sadly it's based upon my real life experience uh, it's my first job first day ever um or in the book is presented Dr. Bruley Whitewood film. And of course you're taken away for the for the mandatory um for the mandatory induction session and they put on the, the company video for you and show you everything else. They show you what the company's like and here are our values and here's what we stand for and here's what we here's how we respond to different all the normal bits and bobs. So as we're going through the motions, we're about to start the video, this guy just comes running in. And he just says, oh, I'm so sorry. And he's very, very bold. Australia, many Australian people are often like this, in the corporate world anyway. He's just mm. he's very bold. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, guys. I'm sorry I'm late. Aussie people time. Aussie people time. Now, when he said the word Aussie people time, it, it made me my antenna stand up a little bit because I've never heard of the Aussie people time, but I heard of black mm. people time when people yes. are late. So, um, so when he said Aussie people time, I was like, this guy trying to be funny. But mm. I, I didn't think much of it. It's not until after the corporate um, porn video ended which they just show you everything, how, how we became so great, glamorous and glorious, but they don't show you about how they're exploiting black people in apartheid South Africa and that sort of stuff. But anyway, but that ended. And then me and him started talking. We had a good conversation. And I've, I don't know about many other people, but I felt that need to prove that I was there on merit when I've mm. talked to certain people. To just say that, hey, this is I'm here on merit. And I've told the guy, hey, I studied this at university. I've got a 2-1. I did X, Y, Z, and something else. And I asked him, so where, where did you study? Like, which university did you go to? And he just said, in his, I'm not going to do an accent. Sadly, if I was, I'd probably um, be a stand-up. But mm-hmm. yeah, but um, he just said, oh, yeah, sorry, university, that's a, that's a big word for a big fella. Uh, no university for me. I was just selling chips on the beach. In, I left school at 15. I was selling chips on the beach in Cornwall uh, a couple of weeks ago. I just moved to the country a couple of weeks ago, and here I am today. Mm-hmm. And it just dawned on me, like, wow, okay. But yeah. I, when I think of everything, my mom worked three jobs. Mm. Also, my mom was a cleaner at an organization I went on to be an executive at. My mm. mom worked three jobs. My mom was a classic Africans you see on the night bus early in the morning, then go, going home to get changed, then going to another job, then they go to the evening cleaning job. So that was my mother. My mom went through that. Um, I've made sure we studied and did everything else, and yada, yada, yada. And at the end of it all or so, this guy trots along, surfs and sells fish and chips on the beach for a few weeks and he's in the exact same place I was in within mm. days. And my mom worked that hard graft for the 60s right the way to when I got into the corporate world in 2004 or 2005, whenever it was. And that's that. even the very first day I went into my actual first job, my mother shed tears of joy. Um, that's, how, that's how much it meant to her. Yeah, and just to see that, well, this guy just waltzes in. And the reason why is, of course, again, normality, that... Um, that he wasn't if he was a black immigrant to the UK or so, unless he was a black immigrant of from, from money, as in somebody who probably the looter class or something else like, like that from back home. But yeah, he they wouldn't ha- that doesn't happen to them. 
Um, yeah. Often they find themselves in the manual labor side of things, but he just pretty much just, hey, walked in, may have known some better recruitment firm, so I think I've one thing leads to another, and here he is today. And that's, he's a lucky guy. Today yeah. he, currently, he currently works in Hong Kong as a trader. And here I am with you. <laughs> well, I know he's done better out of that lot, to be fair. But um, um, and and you chose interestingly for the title. I mean that the that example to me when I was reading it was like a very um, sort of classic example of how whiteness operates. You know, a lot of the time when we have conversations around whiteness, um, particularly white people, a lot of the time can't see whiteness and not aware of it. You know, it's, a, it's normal. No one sees the air. Yes. No one sees the air. It's just, yes. it's just it's, that's whiteness is the air. It's normal. If, if you take whiteness away, or so you take the air away, you start to see bodies dropping because yeah. hey, you can't survive without it. Right. But yeah, but please, sorry. Well, no, but but what's interesting about that also is that you know it does also suggest that you don't have anyone around you who doesn't experience whiteness as normal because if you do um then whiteness ceases to become entirely normal you'll you'll never fully experience whiteness the way that somebody who isn't white experiences it because it's a it's it's a structure that's designed to exclude but yeah. you will but 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 if you have cl- friends family members um colleagues even that you're close enough to that they can uh share their experiences with you then then you know i'm always su- slightly surprised when people say that they just have no sense of it at all because i think well who do you talk to <laughs> uh what but even what do you consume you know nowadays come on you can netflix and um you know it's not it's not you can read there are so many ways of, of kind of understanding that your that centering your experience of the world as a white person is is a kind of truncated version of reality that it's some that, that sometimes it seems a little odd to me that that you can still um have no sense at all um, of whiteness but 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 so it is I mean I think that in the UK that conversation is still uh, lagging a bit um you you yeah. decided to call to call your your book think like a white man I'm, I'm mm-hmm. interested I'm interested in talking to you about this because I uh I think that uh you know obviously uh, isn't isn't that the where why we're in this mess <laughs> that yeah, we've let we'll it, yeah so the book is a book on in the corporate world. It's a book on the corporate world. And the corporate world is the white man's playground, essentially. If you go into the corporate world, there's a reason why no matter... It's kind of like... If you ever work in any corporate... In most corporate worlds, you'll often find that most people who work in, in human resources are women. Mm-hmm. Or most people who work in um, publishing, for example, are women. White mm-hmm. women in both regards. But, or in primary schools, too, same thing. But what you'll then find is that at the top of the tree, there's always white men. Mm-hmm. That whether it's the human resources, primary school teaching, um, um, publishing, or so, for example, like all the main publishers in the UK are run by white men, but mm. the publishing is about eighty something percent white females. I understand it might be a bit lower than that, but yeah, but it's very, very. It's a predominantly white female industry. Yeah, and of course, and that's because again, the customership is the same thing, and also to standards, it uh, offers low pay in many regards. Um, but yeah, but so many things are going on there. Um, Many things are going on there, but the key thing about it is that I just looked at, I looked at many, the actual title itself, truth be told, came from one of my mentors, mm-hmm. and he would often say words to me like, hey, listen, he just whisper words to me, things like, hey, listen, um, when everybody's going out to a pub, for example, I want to go home because I don't drink, and um, 
could you see me going home in the lift? Could you say to me, look, there's no diversity scheme at the pub, but that's where mm. the jobs are. That's where the jobs are often exchanged. That's where the careers yeah. are made or so. Yeah. And he would often, those nuggets of advice, he would point at his head and say, think like a white man's son. Mm-hmm. And then he would just whisper it to me. He would yeah. say, it's my black So he'd whisper it to me. He would say, yeah, you've got to think like a white man. You've got, and he'd just point to you. He would either say, think like a white man or play the white man. Just those type of terms, like in order for you to go somewhere, and his implication was in order for you to actually win in the white man's playground, in the white yeah. man's playing field. So you've got to know how he thinks and then try and outthink him at his own game. And um, of course, he was often just using it humorously as a term, the same as we do as I did with the book. But the reality was that it served a purpose because that was true. They yeah. really did want to get somewhere in the corporate world or so. You are having to think like a white man. Um, you are having to think like, because you just need to out, you're trying to outwit somebody and that's the way it goes. So I just took that name, that actual phrase from my, um, from my, from my mentor, who was he was not actually black. He was actually an Asian man in real life, mm-hmm. an Asian working class, Asian cockney man who did very well for himself in financial services. And um, he would just give me those tips, tip again and again and again. And um, I appreciated it. But I, yeah. but but you're right to a certain degree. Thinking like a white man is, is dangerous because you take it across a societal level or so. It's very very dangerous. The white men sometimes do some crazy stunts. White yeah. men do stuff that are just that's insane. Like even when you think of, let me put something to you like this, right? Uh, Miriam, think of it like this, right? Do you know how crazy it is to break into somebody's house and burgle their house? To literally just br- pick a lock or break a window and climb inside there and think, I'm going to steal whatever I can steal right now and go away. That is an inset- that, is, that is an act of desperation. Because whoever's inside the house, whoever owns the house, knows that house so well that they could be hidden any nook or cranny and blow your brains out and do whatever they want to do to you inside there or so. So you're going to have to go inside there determined and armed and pretty much, pretty much do something crazy. That's just burgling a house. Think of this, that you're some, you have so much ingrained confidence in you that you're thinking that I'm sat in London, I'm going to go fly halfway around the world or so, and I'm, we're going to invade this country, we're going to take whatever we want to take for these people and do as we please and occupy them to everything else. And you're thinking, but invading somebody's home or breaking and entering into somebody's home is insane enough as a, as a concept. Breaking and entering into somebody's country, entire yeah. country, as in, let alone house for house, neighbor for neighbor, you don't know anything about it. So you don't even speak the local language. You don't know anything, but you have so much ingrained confidence in yourself that you feel that you are so brilliant, you are so confident in your ability or so, that you think that, yet we're going to do this and we're going to do it successfully. Of course, it never works. It never does the actual thing or so. It often just leads to increase and immense suffering or so, and immense suffering. But it's the mindset that mm. just actually that goes through people that, yeah, that we can do this. We are the daddy of the earth and we are going to go over there and punish this person for not behaving the way we liked it. Yeah. And, 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 and sorry, go ahead. No, I know. Well, I mean, yes. And, and then obviously disguise it with, you know, excuses like either they're, they're barbarians or they're, um, they're, uh, they have uh, imaginary weapons of mass destruction or, uh, uh, you know, add to the list as necessary <laughs> as you see and fit. It's just it's just looting. But it's looting, essentially, often or so. And don't get me wrong, there are times or so when people might rise in a particular country. But I lived in Nigeria in the 90s. I lived in Nigeria in the 90s. Nigeria is ruled by a gentleman, a gentleman, he was far from a by a man called Sani Abacha, who was mm-hmm. a brutally oppressive dictator. They were a brutally oppressive dictator. He would even, I mean, you think when we associate drive-by shootings, we associate drive-by shootings with gang members normally. Um, in Nigeria, the president had a group of people who were literally just performing drive-by shootings for him, who were mm-hmm. just killing political rivals or so, 
and all that sort of, just in that way, just, and my, my own father was nearly murdered. Um, mm. So, yes, yeah, so all those bits and bobs, and I can see how, but, but for you to say to me that, hey, okay, well, should we get a group of white men to come fly over the country and just start dropping high explosives from 33,000 feet? That's insane. Yeah. That's insane. No way that is going to actually be to betterment of the situation. But again, it's that confidence. It's, but it just became the norm in society because they suggested that it's the norm. And it just became, okay, yeah, this is how things are done. And then yeah. if you feel like that, of course it could be crazily dangerous. But so I'm just referring, I'm principally referring to, and I make fun of these things. I make fun of how this works in the, in the normal world and how crazy some of these people can actually be and how they can behave. And when I say white man in this regard, so I'm including Barack Obama because he behaved in these, that he fought like a white man to a large degree and behaved in a similar way. Mm-hmm. Um, for better or for worse and uh, as beloved of him as, as many of us are as proud of him as we are of his achievements but it, it doesn't change that fact so mm-hmm. yeah so it, um, yeah but it's a crazy world out there and um, but yeah and I think that the um, that white supremacy makes it much more crazy than it needs to be mm. well yeah it, it absolutely does and I think that it's interesting to me you know think like a white man specifically I mean I think there are all kinds of issues with white women as well um, when we talk about whiteness but white, for me, think like a white man, you know, as a, myself as a white woman, I hear, you know, the, the added degree of a sort of violent patriarchy, which is, um, you know, when we talk about invading other countries, there's a sort of invading of female bodies that, that has been very natural <laughs> uh, for very long for, for, for men in, in more generally, but certainly for, for those men who have been in positions of power and are able to, to get away with that. And, um, and, you know, the entitlement that you talk about when, when you're referring to people invading other people's countries or looting, looting their lands, um, I, I, find that a very interesting dimension of the conversation on whiteness because I think a lot of people who are racialized as white don't realize don't even realize how entitled you are inherently uh you know when you're when you're racialized as white think about how many white people travel they expect you know you to speak their language to serve them their food to accommodate all their demands you're you're vegan in a country where no one's ever heard of it okay um, you know, there's there's all sorts of questions around um, that the sort of implicit attitudes uh, that we find uh, in whiteness. I'm curious to hear how much of that you found at the BBC, which obviously is our public broadcaster. For those who aren't familiar with it, it's an institution that's funded by the, the British taxpayer. It's an institution um, that's, that's respected all over the world um, uh, and is meant to re- re- reflect um, the, 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 the array of what it means to be British today. So how, how did you find, uh, what, what, does, what does whiteness look like at the BBC? I think I'll say this about the BBC to begin with. BBC provides a very, very important service across the entire world. Uh, both in the UK and across the entire world. BBC, um, and I'll give an example of my dad, about Sonia Batcher in the 90s. Um, um, Sonia Batcher was a, was a Nigerian dictator I just mentioned. Brutal man. Um, he died in 1998 all of a sudden. As, as a completely out of the blue, he died. And I remember when my younger brother ran back to the house, somehow with the news before us, saying that Sonia Batcher had died. And... Um, he just came running through the house, sprinting from the house, and my dad leapt out of his chair and ran after my brother, wrestled into the ground, and covered his mouth to stop saying it out loud, just to make sure no one hears us or so puts us in danger or anything else. That's how scary things were for my dad at the time. And then suddenly, um, it was announced on Nigerian TV amongst and, and a couple of other African stations 
that he had indeed died. And my dad would not believe it up until he heard it announced on the BBC World Service. At the moment he did, he dropped to his knees and thanked God for the blessing. And it was spoke to me about something about how important the BBC was as a credible voice in the world and actually one that is careful about conveying, um, conveying information and conveying, um, and conveying facts. And um, that's how much my dad trusted it. And of course, my dad being a middle class Nigerian, uh, educated in Britain to a large, to, to a certain degree or so, to at the same time, maybe that speaks to him and his relationship with with um, <laughs> with with the old colonial power. But it spoke to me about how important the BBC was. But overarchingly, and I think the, that says the same about the UK too. The Britain would be much poorer a nation if the BBC was held in private hands and um, and owned by all sorts of public, all sorts of um, companies or publications. So, if, say the Daily Mail took news and the Times took radio and it just wouldn't really work out for us. We'd be a much poorer and much less divided, a much more divided nation as a result. With all that said, with all that said, does BBC have issues as far as race is concerned? There can be no doubt about it. BBC, to anybody who's worked there, um, as far as conduct, content or construct is concerned, BBC has very, very significant problems as far as, that, as, far as race is concerned. And, and we just need to actually, or BBC needs to really get to the grips with that very, very quickly because you can't inform, entertain and educate a society uh, where in a situation in which you yourself as an organisation are not really um, constructed or, 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 or situated to do so, particularly on a topic as important to our society as race, as to the cohesion and, co and continued um, um, yeah, cohesion of our society as much as race is concerned. So yeah, to some degree, even though sometimes there's, there's some whispers amongst many black people, senior and um, not so, and not so much senior um, former BBC staff and some current BBC staff too, who there's been talk of look, is it time now to ask for a truth and reconciliation, a truth and reconciliation style panel on the BBC's relationship with race, where former staff come back and speak of how they were treated, or people speak of how they were treated on air, amongst other things, or we look at how BBC has dealt with the issue of race over generations right now, and the impact BBC has actually had, good and bad, as far as actual race is concerned. That's how, um, that's how bad, um, that's how, not how bad, that's how much, I, in certain quarters, it's felt that BBC has to do on race. So yeah, I think that there's a, lot to, there's a lot of work to be done. I think BBC has to do it and do the work quickly in order to continue to be relevant well into the future. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, you're really, I completely agree with you as somebody who works frequently with the BBC that, you know, it's a reference point globally for news. It's, it's really an important institution both here and, and, and in the world. And I think that any critique of the BBC that we're undertaking here has to be the critique that any good friend would make to another good friend, right? It would be, you know, you're doing great, but on this issue, you know, there, there, there could be some progress um what what would you say are some of the key issues um because i suspect and you can tell me because you've worked across many different industries and in, in, in corporate environments um what are some of the main issues that come up uh in your experience um and, and and that you've now satirized in in the book some of the main issues across the board we're not talking about bbc anymore so i was in, i'm running away from that trouble but from that from that um, <laughs> well I mean, 
Where, yeah. Whether or not they can extend to the BBC, it would be, be really interesting, I think, for many people to hear what that looks like at the BBC as well. But if you want to make it a bit broader, um, you know, because maybe people forget that there is also a corporate side to the BBC in the sense that there are there's a, a whole a whole there are whole departments that don't work in just producing news. Um, so so yeah, you can make it as specific or as general as you need. <laughs> I think the issues as far as um, as far as being an ethnic minority, being a non-white person in the in the so part, part of the objective of Think Black White Man was to look at being a black person in the whitest space you could possibly want to inhabit, which was the corporate world for me. Um, that that was the pinnacle of whiteness or white normality or so, um, and um, and it, you literally you are a fish out of water. So, in terms of actually finding out how what the issues are. The issues could not be more vast from the hurdles you have to overcome, lesser pay, um, lesser pay than possibly anyone else or so, um, much greater hurdles in actually trying to get into the organization, let alone get into the career path that you want to get onto or so, and then getting up in that career path, so getting in, getting on, getting up, and then the um, issues, the qualitative day-to-day issues, how do you deal with racism when you experience it? Because in the corporate world, for example, as and that cuts across BBC, anywhere else or so that I've worked in, the norm is they actually don't have, it's very, race or racism is very poorly understood. So the norm is that they are looking for a, um, a Derek Chauvin style figure kneeling on your neck and, um, or doing something horrific to you in order for it to be accepted as racism, or for them to hear a bad word, for them looking for racial language for it to become racism. As opposed to thinking, okay, why am I being paid 70% less than my white male peer or so, than my white male peer over here? That is not defined as racism. That's just defined as whatever they want to, whatever they want to call it or so. Um, he, he, has a, he has a spark in his eye. Um, he's got a, he's, he's a greater value on the market, amongst other things or so. Of course. And that's how it tends to work. That's where we tend to focus more on the, um, on the, on the other sides of racism, on the more extreme sides of racism, the language and... and um, and sometimes very, very violent actions. But yeah, so I think the, the, the problems as far as race and racism are, are concerned in the corporate world are, are, are way too many to actually document in this, on, on this podcast. But we do, we document them extensively and think like a white man very, very extensively. There's 187 do's and don'ts of things that you need to consider um, from the class elements to the, the, the added on class elements bolted on class elements to the racial elements to the gender elements as where it's necessary to and of course sexuality elements even themselves too so um i think there's there's lots going on there's lots of hurdles to overcome and to understand and i'd recommend you buy the book <laughs> yes of course that's uh what what you uh well actually on that subject who did you anticipate being the audience for the book uh, i think like a white man um obviously it's a, it's a satirical title but um who are you uh, aiming at I think it's a good point. So I think it's a very, very good question. So I tend to, with me, I think there's sometimes there's a there's a question for the writer and there's a question for the publisher. So for me as a writer, so I just wanted to write this book for people who wanted to know how people like me live and navigate and get to the top of where we're trying to get to in this society, in these sorts of societies. And that's who, that's who I had in mind. And that's, that was an important thing for myself. And that could be a black person who wants to, who's an older black person who wants to, who wants some degree of confirmation that they're not going crazy 
or a younger black person who, or ethnic minority person or so who wants an understanding of what it's like when they're being put through the crazy mill. And um, that, that to have an understanding of what, what they're going to see or to have an understanding of what they've actually been through if you're a much older person. But if you're a white person or so, part of my feeling really truly was, and I often say this with a giggle, is that, um, for, that for them to understand the more diverse staff that they actually have, that they should be having within their organization if they wish to progress and be around in a few years' time, um, to understand what it's like being them. Now, the reality of the matter is that now, once um, post-George Floyd, Derek Ch after Derek, Derek um, Chauvin's lynching of George Floyd, organizations call me in right now to have discussions about it. And they, dawns on them, they say to themselves that when I saw that video, um, it really dawned on me. I was starting to wonder what, what, is, what is it like for black people working in my corporation? Do, are they able to speak else? Are they able to do this or something else? And I often say to them, no, it's rubbish for them. I can say with some degree of authority, they, they're probably scared at any given time in the working experience. So, and I say to them, I keep saying to these bosses all the time when I meet them, that, look, go and read this book. Literally, you'll probably learn much more about racism than you probably would because you've learned, you're reading a book about racism from an unapologetic perspective of a black person who's literally thinking like a white person and talking like a white person, who's talking like a white man or so in your language about the, about the black experience is describing you in, in the way that normally people like you have described people like ourselves. And um, yeah, fair enough, they don't tend to go read it, but yeah, but it's a nice try anyway. But yeah, the norm is... Um, yeah, <laughs> black people and all sorts of people have just read it and enjoyed it. So yeah, all non-racist and anti-racist will enjoy this book. Racists <laughs> will find it infuriating. Yeah, well, um, I, in, on that particular note, um, talking about the corporates you just mentioned and, and kind of giving them the book, I'm really interested to hear uh, maybe as, as our final point about how you think uh, the momentum that has uh, come out of the Black Lives Matter movement which you know in, in initially emerged in America, but is now a global movement, and we've seen from there these big corporate brands, you know, from Nike to Lloyd's, um, coming out in support of BLM. Um, do we think that the BLM effect will be able to uh, create the sort of change in corporate culture that needs to happen? Um, are, are you seeing any evidence of that yet yourself? So there's a couple of things going on over here. Number one, so when we think of BLM, BLM is of course a is a nonviolent movement in the tradition of the civil rights movement or so, speaks truth to power, amongst other things. And that of course is, a, is important in trying to actually market the issues that you actually have on hand. But there's something different this time around. Number one, you had very, very serious violence sparking the situation. Um, very, very serious violence by the situation as far as um, Derek Chauvin lynching of, um, of George Floyd is concerned. And that violence or so, what people were seeing there was pretty much, had pretty much bred what was looking like an actual all-out revolution. As in, when I say revolution, so what you were seeing in the early days of, of post-George Floyd's murder or so, the seizure you were seeing, particularly in America or so, um, we're not a million miles away from the scenes you were seeing in, say, uh, in, in some parts of the, in, in some parts of um, the Middle East uh, during what was described as the Arab Spring, that people had had enough, people were serious, and people were now taking action. So when the police precinct or the police station was, was torched, set on absolute fire, and multiple buildings set on fire or so, if I'm a corporate boss and I've got, and corporations pretty much run America or so, and I've got corporate power, I'm thinking to myself, 
does a revolution benefit me as a businessman or does it not? And if it does not, then maybe I should get on telephone and speak to a couple of guys. Of course, I have no idea if this actually really happened, but if I was running, say, a Nike or somebody else or so, I would be thinking to myself that, does this benefit me or this society that I tend to actually make my money out of if a revolution kicks off right now? What can I do to try and actually make sure this is controlled? You give it money. You give it a respectability. You put, par you put um, uh, boundaries around how it should potentially behave by, giving, by offering some degree of encouragement or so. And of course, because the great thing about it, that with any revolution or so, the one thing you always need to spark it is that one act where the camel, where the straw breaks the camel's back and they just have to say enough's enough and that's it, the people are going for it. So how the corporations behave are how I expect corporations to behave, that no corporation is behaving for anything other than their own corporate interests in the long term. In the long term, and um, as, no matter how they might disguise it or how they might say it, or so the corporation is always about the corporations and its own interests. So yeah, we're seeing the actual the the embracing of Black Lives Matter by all these companies and the Football Association, amongst other things, or so and everything else. That's good. I'm sure there are some people in all these corporations who want, who do believe in Black Lives Matter, who do believe that these, they want these things actually to they they want to get rid of racism from our society or so. But the big picture is that look. Giving these organizations, giving Black Lives Matter, amongst other people, a lot of money and then um, control, controlling the narrative, not control, well, helping actually create a good narrative around it and controlling the violence around it, which really, truly, there's a questionable as to whether or not it was the actual violence that was causing the change that was happening this time around, whether that was the thing that made it a bit more different or whether or not it was the elements in which everybody came out far and wide, rural Britain, um, in so many parts of the world, Nigeria, Lagos, Ghana, um, South America, throughout the entire world, the world was coming, the Middle East, the world was coming out to, de to demonstrate against what they saw as far as Derek Chauvin was concerned. But I think what we had, that's undeniable, whether it's the non-violent action or the, even the violent actions, which evidently I have to say I do not endorse. But, um, but even all those things collectively, and what we had was a critical mass that could no longer be ignored and had to be and had to be dealt with in one way or another. And you can't, you can't fight water, as Fela Kuti put it. Water has no enemy, you need water. You can't fight the people when they're united against you or so. So the states and the, the institutions and the corporations have got together and um, yeah, they tried to support this in certain ways. What do I think this means in the end of it for Black Lives Matter or the perpetuation of the actual movement? I think time will tell in terms of, of what's happening. It does feel like right now the media is moving on. Uh, the media is moving on to different things. Certain media has already started to, to demonize uh, Black Lives Matter and the, and the leaders of it or so. But um, what the future holds, um, time will tell. I think that it's an important thing that symbols are being torn down. But as I always say, the symbols of racism serve one purpose. But then once you've got rid of the symbols, you have to get rid of racism itself. And that's the most important thing. Because it's very easy, it's easier to tear down a statue, but it's all it's it's, it's easier to tear down a statue of a system or of a belief system or so. But it's much more harder to tear down the actual system itself, uh, because that's where people are are really self interested in it. And how do you overcome that? Uh, I think a lot of thinking has to be done to it, about it, and a lot of um, action has to be taken after that. But it's um, but I commend the Black Lives Matter movement. I commend the people. Oh, yeah, far and wide for everything they did. And I'm grateful to them because they've made my life safer. That's the reality of the matter. You optimistic 
about the feature. I can't, sorry, Miriam, is you a bit quiet there? You're a bit, you're a bit quiet. I can't really hear you. Oh, you, um, can you, how's that? A lot better. Yeah. Um, are you optimistic about the future? I know that um, there was a, a recent study by The Guardian that found that two thirds of black people in the UK said that they felt that racism was either as bad or worse than when they were younger. Um, how do you feel about the future? I'm actually quite scared, truth be told. Uh, mm. Boris Johnson, as far as being me being a black British man, um, I've never felt more as a grown-up, I've never felt less at home in my own country than I do today right now. And it's and it's not just a black-white thing, which is the funny thing about it. Boris Johnson, stone-cold racist in my view. I, do, I consider Boris Johnson to be a very, very cold man as far as that racist, race and everything else is concerned. I, I have no doubt about it. Um, I can give you so many examples of that. But I actually look at Priti Patel as worse. And Priti Patel, for example, is not far away from the, from, number, from the seat of power at number 10. And if Priti Patel say, becomes prime minister of this country, I am going to have to move. There's, there's no doubt about it. I am not going to wait here for Priti Patel to play, to play very, very brutal racial politics with my life, as she's currently doing right now with other people's lives. But frankly, it hasn't impacted me. It hasn't impacted me. Hopefully, it never will. But if a Priti Patel, again, just look at the optics of it. Me, ethnic minority British person, British man is thinking if Priti Patel becomes Prime Minister tomorrow, so myself, my family are leaving. That has to be it. So, because I view Priti Patel as a greater threat to the lives of black people than even a Boris Johnson. Because Priti Patel will have that same ethnic cover, which is, this is not racist. Because racism is, no one wants to accept that their nation is racist. But Priti Patel will be, seen, will be upheld as a, almost as a, a banner of British inclusivity Whereas in reality, she's a, she should be upheld as a banner, as a billboard of British racism. Because that's what's propelling her forward right now as far as her career is concerned. As you and I are speaking right now, Miriam, a gentleman called Andrew Harper, a police officer called Andrew Harper, the killers of a police officer called Andrew Harper were just convicted of manslaughter. They were not convicted of murder. Mm. If that Andrew Harper was murdered by three black teenagers... His name would be viral and everywhere else right now. And black people would be under siege. And Priti Patel would be leading the charge, saying all things such as, oh, well, this is good that um, these, these people have brought under, we must improve, improve sentences, uh, make sure there's much different sentences and all sorts of bits and bobs. But because it's white young people who did this to this poor police officer whose family I, I send my condolences to and my heart goes out to, it's just like swept under the rug. Because policing under Priti Patel, as it was for many successive Home Secretaries, policing has become very racialized within the society. So every time there's some sort of disturbance as far as a black people are concerned, so throw the book at them. And this has been going on for a very, very long time, for, for a very, very long time right now. And the norm is that, look, me becoming a dad of a six-year-old girl who I know is going to be an amazing young black woman, teenager, everything else, as far as time goes on. So eventually down the line or so, she might go to some sort of party somewhere. Um, she goes to some sort of party somewhere else down the line. Police come rushing in, and bingo, they're there, racialized to the back teeth or so. And I just have to make sure I've done a good enough job to tell her at that sort of moment how to behave and just how to get yourself out of that situation. Mm. And and if you and if you don't, and if you don't, if your daughter, your child doesn't really know how to conduct themselves in those sorts of moments, so it could prove catastrophic. And if anything happens, I'd never forgive myself. So. Yeah. So this is what we're looking at as far as our society is concerned. But am I optimistic for the future? 
quite frankly, I'm kind of, I don't know, I, I like to think I'm always optimistic and I always like to look on the bright side of life, but I literally do have fear that the right is in ascendancy across Europe, even in America, um, even though Donald Trump is loads of points behind right now, there's loads of points behind 2016, I wouldn't be surprised if he won again. And it's just for as as non-white people, or as, or as ethnic minorities, or as racialized people, as racialized people within these societies, this is very scary stuff. And the norm is you, through this fear and everything else, you still got to proceed and operate in a way in which um, you think that was going to be was going to do well. So we hope for the best, but we prepare for otherwise. Prepare for the worst, yeah. Well, that's uh, that's a somber note to to end on, but. Um, thank you so much for talking to us, Nels. Um, for all of you listening, if you want to find out more, then uh, you can uh, buy Think Like a White Man, Conquering the World While Black by Whitelaw Third, Dr. Whitelaw Third, um, or um, Ab- uh, Nels Abbey uh, or at all good bookstores, um, and probably not from Amazon unless you want to add to Bezos's uh, already billionaire status. Uh, we recommend your local independent bookstore as a great alternative. Thank you all for listening and hope to catch you next time for the next episode of we need to talk about whiteness